Well, good morning once again. I love this time of your great sleeping weather at night. Beautiful morning to come out and to worship the one true living God. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to be taking a break from our study of the Gospel of John this summer. We're going to preach through a series of messages on the church, primarily on the purpose and the importance of the church in the life of the Christian. It seems the older I get, the more it seems that the days just fly by. I I was thinking the other day, uh, and it's hard for me to believe, but I've been a Christian now for over 45 years, which means... (laughs) Uh, that some 45 years ago, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to the awfulness of my sin and regenerated my cold, dead heart and granted me repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have been a part of the universal church for four and a half decades. And when I say the universal church, I mean the the big body of believers that Christ came to the earth to die for. Those people everywhere, in, in every location that Jesus purchased from the slave market of sin. Specifically, those people redeemed by God from the time of the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to our present age. When Kathy and I spent a night at the bed and breakfast a couple of months ago, we had some wonderful fellowship with a recently retired pastor and his wife from from Alabama. We we had this instant connection because of our common love for Christ. We're fellow members of the greater body of Christ. But as we'll see in our study this summer, the Lord's design is for every Christian to be accountable to and committed to a local body of Christ. You see, Kathy and I had this connection, this special connection with these folks from Alabama, but we had no commitment to them. We had an affinity for them, but no accountability to them. And I think you you get the point. Be very wary when folks try to minimize the local church and maximize the universal church. There's something dramatically out of whack in their lives. Because it's God's design that every Christian be fully accountable to and committed to a local church. Because it's in and through the local church that we receive the biblical instruction that we need. It's, it's in and through the local church that, that uh, uh, we receive the, the spiritual leadership and scrutiny and discipline that we need. It's in and through the local church that we are to exercise our spiritual gifts, to practice the one another's of the New Testament, and to reach our communities for Christ. So why are there so many people, so many that call themselves Christians, de-churching, as it's been called? Have you heard this term before? De-churching? It's been around for a while, but it's, it's made a resurgence as if this is a positive thing. There have been books that have been written about this subject, de-churching. You can look them up on online. It's the idea that really that there's a minimization of the local church and this idea that we really don't need to be a part of a local body of Christ. And so if you look at the statistics, you will find that people are leaving the local church by the thousands. People who say they're a Christian are leaving the local church to simply do their own thing. But they say, no, we're a part of the greater body of Christ. And that's all that really matters. No, it doesn't. No, it isn't the only thing that matters. The New Testament, the epistles... (laughs) were written 
so that we know how to be a part of a local church. All of the promises that are made to the universal church, all of the guarantees of our salvation as we enter into the universal church, and all of our responsibilities are filtered down in and through the local church. Anyone who tries to minimize the local church, you got to wonder about them. you got to wonder. There's something not right in their life. I want to begin by looking at the big picture today in Matthew chapter 16 as we begin our series, because I think it's important to establish not only the foundation on which the greater church of Christ was built, but who has ownership over the church. So hopefully you're in Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to warn you as we move throughout this series, we, we are going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture as we move our way through, and today is not going to be any different. We're going to look at a number of passages today because we want to lay the, the foundation, we want to establish who are we accountable to as the church. And so let me draw the distinction once again between the universal church and the local church. The universal church are all of those who are redeemed by God through faith in Christ from the time of Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost, until the current age. The church age actually goes all the way up until the rapture of the church, which is yet future. Those are the church age saints. Okay, so that's the universal church, those whom Christ died for everywhere, people in Russia and China and Germany and Italy and France and the United States and Canada and Mexico. It's the universal body of Christ. Have you ever gone somewhere and run into someone who is a a Christian and you have this instant connection with them? I mean, that's what happened with us at the bed and breakfast. It was absolutely wonderful. We had a great time of fellowship. But you see the difference between us being a part of the universal church and us being a part of the local church. So the local church, all of the epistles in the New Testament are written to either the church itself or someone in the local church. So all of the commands, all of the directives, all of the things that the Lord wants to say to us about how we live out the Christian life, it's all done in the context of the local church. There is a difference between the universal church and the local church. And so as we drill down and move throughout our series, we're going to see the importance and the value of the local church in the life of all of us, in the life of every true believer in Jesus Christ. It is God's design for us to be a part of a local assembly of believers. And so that's where we hope to go as we move throughout our series. But I want to go back to the big picture now. I want to go back to the big picture. And let's see here in Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. And we want to look at the church's master. The church's master, that is indeed our subject matter for this morning. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, there's no doubt 
that the Lord used Peter in a mighty way in the establishment of his church. It was Peter who preached that powerful sermon at the Feast of Pentecost, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, in which 3,000 people came to faith in Christ, and the greater church was launched. It was Peter who was the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and we see that in Acts chapter 10. But as we begin our series on the church, I think it's important to identify whose church it is. This makes all the difference in the world as to our commitment to the church and our understanding of God's design for the church. Notice that Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. On this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the architect of the church. He is the chief cornerstone, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Jesus is the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11. He's the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23. The church, the ecclesia, is his. Okay? Foundational. The church is his. Yes, we are a part of a local church, and it's okay to say, that is my church. These are the people that I fellowship with. These are the people that I'm accountable to. These are the people that I interact with, that I worship with, and so on. And it's fine for us to identify that way with the church, but recognize that the church the ecclesia is his. Ek means out, kaleo means to call. And so the church, the ecclesia, are the called out ones, those who have been called out for salvation by Christ. It is Jesus' church. Why? Because he purchased it with his own blood. Acts twenty twenty eight makes this abundantly clear. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus bought the church. The church is his. So folks have quibbled for centuries over Jesus' use of the word rock here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Jesus said, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so the question is, who or what is the rock? Is Peter the rock? Or is the rock Peter's confession in verse 16? Well, it appears to me that while God used Peter as one of his instruments to help to build Christ's church, way too much has been made of Peter being the rock. From this one verse, the Catholic Church has tried to elevate Peter to a place that he does not belong. Peter was not the first pope, and Peter didn't start the Catholic Church. The only other thing I'll say about Peter and the Catholic Church is if Peter was truly the founder of the Catholic Church, and I want you to think about this, if Peter was truly the founder of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church would be in full agreement with what Peter taught. And they obviously are clearly not. The Catholic Church is an apostate church. And so with that being said, I believe that there is an intentional play on words here in Matthew chapter 16. So follow along here. The the word for Peter is Petros, which means a small stone. Okay, the word for Peter, Petros, it means a small stone. So Jesus is using a play on words here as this word rock is the Greek word Petra, which means a foundational boulder. So it's the same word as was used in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, to describe the rock upon which a wise man builds his house. So in my estimation, Jesus' words here are best interpreted as a simple play on words in that a boulder-like truth came from the mouth of one who was called a small stone. Look again at Peter's confession in verse 16. Let me go back to verse 15. He said to them, his disciples, but who do you yourselves say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is interesting here. If you haven't caught this before, catch this. This is interesting because Jesus had never explicitly taught Peter and the other disciples the fullness of his identity. And so Jesus says here that it was God the Father who had sovereignly opened Peter's eyes as to who Jesus really was. Peter's confession here was proof positive of his personal faith in Jesus. And it's the same faith that is the common denominator of those who make up the church of Jesus Christ. It was Peter who said in 1 Peter 2, 4, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So like Peter, the church is built of living stones who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those confessions of faith are the bedrock of the church. Paul said in Ephesians 2.20 that God used the prophets and the apostles to lay the foundation for the church, but Jesus is the cornerstone. Let me, just, let me just talk a little bit about the prophets and the apostles. So in God's design, God had certain men, primarily, who were prophets, who foretold what God wanted the people to know. And remember, this is prior to the completion of the canon of Scripture. God used men to bring forth the Word of God to other people. So he used these prophets to let people know what was coming, but he also chose 12 apostles, right? So these 12 apostles, along with the prophets, laid the foundation for the the church, which means that they were the ones who gave the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the ones who were the mouthpieces of God, who went around and told people about Jesus, And and Peter, being one of the apostles, preaches this great sermon at Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day and were baptized. 3,000 people. What's interesting is that the universal church and the local church was the same thing originally. You ever thought about that? So this all happened in Jerusalem, and so when these people came to faith in Christ, these 3,000 people, this multitude of people, responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ preached by one of the apostles, being Peter himself. And so the, the universal church was born, but also a local church was born because most of the people who were there were from the Jerusalem area. So the universal church and the local church were essentially one in the same. God used the prophets and the apostles to lay the foundation for the church. So in that, he gave them special gifts. We call them the apostolic sign gifts. And so God gave these apostles and prophets the ability, the God-given ability to do certain things, to perform miracles and, and to do certain things so that it would authenticate their message. Again, this is all prior to the completion of the canon of Scripture. So God was still speaking in a sense. God was still speaking through the prophets and the apostles who were laying the foundation for the church. We are building upon that foundation now. But it was the apostles and the prophets that God used to lay the foundation for the church. But never once was there any mistaking that Jesus is the cornerstone. It is his church. He's the architect of the church. Yes, he used men to help to build his church. And yes, he empowered them with special gifts. But now, all of the prophets and all of the apostles are gone, right? They're all dead. And with them went the apostolic sign gifts. So when the apostles died, all of these apostolic sign gifts went with them. 
And isn't it interesting how all this worked together in God's sovereign plan? So as the apostles began to die off, 11 of the 12 were martyred. The only one that wasn't martyred was John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. He's the only one. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. He was the only one that died of old age. All of the other apostles were martyred for their faith. They're all gone now. And with them went all of these ecstatic apostolic gifts. But isn't it interesting how all this coincided with the completion of the canon of Scripture? And so now we have the revelation of God revealed to us, complete. God is no longer speaking in that way through apostles and prophets. I've told you this before, but it it was interesting. I preached a sermon probably about 10 years ago in our church. Got done, went down. After the service, some lady met me right over by my chair. Never seen her before. Didn't know who she was. I greeted her like I greet everyone else. She introduced herself as a prophetess. I am a prophetess. I said, no, you are not a prophetess. Well, what do you mean? I said, because all of the apostles and prophets are gone. You are not a prophetess. Well, I noticed on the back of your bulletin that all of your elders are men. Why aren't there any women who are elders? Because the Bible says that the office of elder is for men. Next. What else you got? You're not a prophetess. You can attend here and be a part of our church if you're willing to learn. But don't try to come here and bring this aberrant theology to our church. Prophetess, she said. Well, God used prophets. He used the apostles to lay the foundation for the church. But Jesus is the cornerstone. On top of all that, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is described as Lord. Lord. He is the Lord of the church. He is the, listen to this, He is the coming King. He is the Lord of the church. In real time, as the church was being launched in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost, It was Peter who affirmed the lordship of Jesus when he said in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word for Lord, you may know, the word for Lord in the New Testament is the Greek word kurios, which means master. Right? So when Jesus was on the earth, he asked the question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's a really good question. In other words, how can anyone call Jesus Lord and not desire to obey him? Again, the word for Lord is curios, master. If you know Christ as Savior, He is your Lord. He is your Master, which means that He has full authority over your life. We are His servants, His slaves, to do His will. Peter said in Acts 10.36 that Jesus is Lord of all, meaning He's supreme over all. Our world has tried to cut out certain words from our vocabulary because they are supposedly no longer culturally accepted. But the Bible identifies followers of Jesus as his slaves. Doulos in the Greek. Used 117 times in the New Testament. I think the Lord is trying to tell us something. Ephesians 6.6 identifies those who are slaves of Christ as those who are doing the will of God from the heart. You see the connection? He is Lord... We are his slaves. He is master. We are to do his bidding, to do his will, to follow his commands. If you're not being obedient to what the Lord wants, how in the world can you call yourself a Christian? Because calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. 
Do you realize how many people call themselves a Christian? I mean, this is still, when the polls are taken, this is still, as crazy as this sounds, this is still identified as a Christian nation? Really? Calling yourself a Christian does not make you a Christian. A lot of people call themselves a Christian. The fruit of the Christian life is obedience. Not listening to podcasts, or going to conferences, or reading books, or even going to church, posting on social media. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Nothing wrong with those things. Absolutely nothing wrong with those things. But if you're doing those things so that people may think you are spiritual, that's not it. That's not it. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. In other words, while obedience is not the root of our salvation, it is certainly the fruit. It is certainly the fruit of our salvation. A true Christian loves who and what Jesus loves. And Jesus unmistakably loves his church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Apostle John said in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid his life down for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you cannot be a Christian... You cannot be a Christian without manifesting the love of Christ and confessing him as Lord and Master. Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. In Jude 1.4, the half-brother of Jesus called him our only Master and Lord. Jesus is the Lord and Master of the church. He is indeed Lord of all. The question is, (laughs) are we submitting to him as Lord Are we submitting our lives to him as Lord? For some reason, we have lost, over time, we have lost this idea of the master-slave relationship. And, And let me just say, the church is ultimately affected by the culture. We have to fight that. Because all we do and all we hear are these things, these repetitive things over and over and over in the news. Article after article after article twisted to try to get us to think a certain way. And let me just say, as Christians, we need to fight against that. We need to have a biblical worldview and we need to go back to the scriptures to determine what it is that we believe and what it is that we're going to share with other people. Don't get caught up in what the culture is selling. It's no good. It's an unbelieving culture. The Bible speaks about this. Satan is the one who is operating the culture. And Christians are buying it. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Who is more pleased, Christ or Satan? Christians are buying all this garbage that the culture is selling. How can we call ourselves a Christian and not be obedient to Christ? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome, they're for your benefit. So all this takes us to our passage for this morning. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. How in the world are we going to talk about the church and not first begin talking about Christ, who is the Lord and the master of the church? So now we want to drill down even farther. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 for context, but we're going to center our attention specifically on verses 9 through 11. But follow along here as we go through the context to get us to where we need to go. 
Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, let me just say, he's writing this. Paul is writing this to a local church, the church at Philippi, and look what he's talking about. He's not talking about the greater universal church here. He's talking about the local church. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly, and this is where we'll begin to look at here in a moment, for this reason, again, pointing back, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, meaning Jesus, the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, Master, Curios, to the glory of God the Father. So here we find perfect unity in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. It was Jesus, the second Spirit, person of the trinity who humbly came to the earth in the power of the spirit and died a cruel death on the cross of calvary he came to do the will of the father who in turn exalts his son and so in this powerful passage of scripture we find the humility of jesus on display remember the larger context here is unity within the local church Paul is using Jesus as the example, as the perfect illustration of the humility that we all should have as those who make up the church. And so let's look a little bit more here this morning at verses 9 through 11, and let's find three notable reasons for Jesus' lordship. Three notable reasons for Jesus' lordship. And the first reason is found here at the first part of verse 9, and it's because God highly exalted him. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. Paul begins verse 9 here by saying, for this reason also. So, So what he's about to say ties back to what he just said. So when he says here, for this reason also God highly exalted him, he's referring to God highly exalting Jesus because of his humility in dying on the cross for sinners. And so as the result of Jesus' obedient life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. He's high, and he's lifted up. He's been exalted by God the Father. He has the highest rank. No one ranks higher than Jesus. I was not in the military I have an immense respect for those of you who were, those of you who served our country. This is Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people gave their life so that we can have the freedoms that we have. And so I have an immense respect for those of you who served. But I have a general understanding of how it works in the military. If someone of a lower rank walks into a room and there's someone that is a higher rank that is in the room, they immediately recognize the rank, right? They recognize that they're in the presence of someone who ranks higher than them. 
So we could go down this whole list of how these rankings go in each branch of the military, but the bottom line is that when we look at life, when we look at the big picture, no one ranks higher than Jesus. He has the highest rank, which means that everyone answers to Jesus. He is the ultimate authority to judge. Why? Because of his accomplishments and status that we read about here in verses 5 through 8. Because he is Lord, Jesus is the ultimate judge. We recently looked at this passage in John 5, verses 22 through 29. And I want you to keep your finger here in Philippians uh, chapter 2, but just, just go back to John chapter 5. These pages in your Bible may be a bit more crinkled than the others because we've been there for months and months and months. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. John 5, 22 and following, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of life, out of death unto life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, Every believer in Jesus Christ, every believer who bears the name of Christ, will one day stand before him. All of us who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, we've repented of our sin, we've recognized how heinous our sin is before a holy God, we've turned to Jesus Christ in faith, We are named among his saints. We are a part of the universal church. We will all stand before Jesus one day. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Now, is that talking about deeds in the greater body of Christ? Or how that filters down to the local body of Christ? according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, people say, well, when is that going to happen? I don't know. But it seems, perhaps, that the judgment seat of Christ will most likely take place sometime during the seven-year tribulation period, along with the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll find out. But we'll all stand before Jesus one day. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about if you're in the military and you are private. Is that like the, the, the lowest guy? He's a, he's a, he's a private. He's, he's, he's new, to the, new to the military. And he goes and he stands before a five-star general. And the general has full authority to do whatever he wants to do to this private in such a greater way. (laughs) And let me just say, none of us are, we're all privates, in a sense. We're nobodies. We're nobody. All we have 
is a relationship with Christ. He is the one with the high rank. We are slaves to Christ. Menial galley slaves. But we're all going to stand before Jesus who has the highest rank. And guess what? He knows everything. He knows everything we have done, everything we have said, who we've associated with, who we call our best buddies. He knows it all. We'll stand before him and give an account. And notice that it says, according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Whether good or bad. Can you imagine? I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. I have tried to serve him faithfully for my whole life, but I have not done it perfectly. Just a private. Going to stand before the one with the highest rank. I think this should serve as a motivation for us. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he said. Well, what are his commandments? Well, his commandments are included all throughout the New Testament to the church, specifically as we operate within the local church. The epistles were written to a local church or those who were leading a local church. We'll all stand before Jesus. Everything will be unhidden. The second reason for Jesus' lordship is found in the second part of verse 9, and it's because God bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So there's perfect unity and equality within the Godhead, but for the most part, when we consider Scripture, we find that the Spirit amplifies both the Father and the Son, and the Son elevates the Father. But here we find the the Father elevating the Son. So what's the name that Jesus was given, which is above every name? It's the title of Lord, which is now synonymous with the name of Jesus. Verse 11, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. And as we said, the word Lord is the Greek word kurios. It means master or ruler. You know, the line would be so long of those who would gladly accept the salvation that Jesus offers as long as it didn't cost him anything. It's the world we live in. As long as they didn't have to follow and obey Jesus as their Lord, the line would be long. Who doesn't want to go to heaven? And let me just say in your gospel presentation, that's not the place to start. Would you like to go to heaven? I can tell you how to get to heaven. That's not the place we start. You see, even the gospel is about God, it's his gospel. And so if we're going to talk to somebody about their salvation, we need to start with who God is. Why are we responsible to God? Who is He? Who is Jesus? He's holy and righteous and above all else. We, on the other hand, are sinners. And He can't have anything to do with us apart from what Jesus Christ has done for us. The third reason for Jesus' lordship is found here in verses 10 and 11, and it's because God will receive glory when every knee bows before him and confesses him as Lord. Look at verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Catching me? Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's an action. We'll all bow before Him, and we'll all confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Every single 
person. So it seems good so far, right? We all get what Paul's saying here. We know that Jesus is Lord. We must confess Him as Lord to be saved. But just when we think we got it, Jesus throws a little wrinkle in this whole line of thought because not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, the great Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone, he says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It was this passage in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, and others that was at the heart of this whole debate on lordship salvation over three decades ago. So just to give you a little history, back in 1988, John MacArthur wrote a book called uh, the Gospel According to Jesus, and all of the easy believism pro- uh, proponents went absolutely bonkers. They went nuts. <laughs> this ushered in a debate over what was called lordship salvation. That's work salvation, they said. If we have to do the will of the Father, then it's as if we have to earn our salvation, and that takes away from grace and God's free gift of salvation. But that was the point of the book. You see, it's one thing to call Jesus Lord. It's quite another to actually do His will, to follow Him as Lord. Jesus repeatedly said to the crowds, Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. No one was advocating for a works-based salvation, certainly not MacArthur and certainly not me, but that we don't get to choose Jesus as Savior and reject him as Lord. He is both Savior and Lord. James says, faith without works is dead. There is such a thing as a dead faith. A dead faith is void of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. A dead faith is void of obedience to God. This is what James writes in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And James is not advocating for a works-based salvation. He is saying that true saving faith goes hand in hand with good works. In fact, he's saying that true saving faith is proven by good works. It's proven by good works. The demons would subscribe to easy believism because the scriptures say they believe and shudder. So as we go back here to Philippians chapter 9, or chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul says boldly that at the name of Jesus, the supreme one, every knee will bow. And then he gives three groups of people. See this here? Those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, and those who are under the earth. So first, let's think about those who are in heaven. This would include the elect angels and the saints of all ages. The second group that Paul mentions is those who are on the earth. So this would include those redeemed and unredeemed people who are not in heaven. And then the third group is those who are under the earth. And this would then include all of those fallen angels and the unredeemed dead who are awaiting their final judgment. And this is all spelled out in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Paul's ultimate point here is that everyone will confess Jesus as Lord because He is Lord. They will confess Jesus as Lord. All the created, and sometimes I think people forget, (laughs) they're the created. They're not the Creator. They don't determine what is right and wrong. The Creator determines what is right and wrong. 
all the created will bow before Jesus and confess Him as Lord. So what we have here is a progression of understanding in the text, all in the context of unity in the local church. Starting back at verse 1 of chapter 2, up and through verse 11, Paul's point is, look at the humility of Jesus. If Jesus, who is God and our Lord and Master, can show humility, then why shouldn't we be able to exhibit the same kind of humility? And this summer, we want to come to the Scriptures in all humility and see all that the Lord has for us as it relates to our relationship to His church. Not so much the universal church, but the local church, where all His commands functionally play out for us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who is the one who's given the commandments? Who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? It's Jesus, the coming King, but the Lord of the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. We'll all stand before Him. We'll either stand in judgment before Him and be cast into the lake of fire. All unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire into a fiery place called hell that the Bible describes as absolutely awful. And it's exactly what all of us deserve as sinners. But God has given the offer of salvation to sinners like us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is Jesus your Savior and your Lord? Do you follow Him as your Master? It's who He is. It's who He is. We want to proclaim Him as to who He is. He is Lord and Savior. If you have not turned to Him in repentance of sin and faith in Christ, please see us today. We'd love to talk to you more about how you can have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the gift of Your Word to us so that we know exactly what You want from us. Thank You for the gift of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die in our place and to do what we could not do for ourselves. We're so thankful for His sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. Literally, His substitutionary death where He died in our place. And Lord, if there's someone here today that needs Christ as Savior and Lord, we pray that today would be the day. We thank You and praise You in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.